Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, the Surrey policing decision remains in limbo as both sides continue to debate staffing and recruiting. Now, a new letter warns of repercussions of voting against the SPS. We'll have exclusive details. And is greater housing density finally arriving to quiet side streets in Vancouver, or will it forever be banished to busy thoroughfares? And should police have access to your video doorbell footage? That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's talk about probably the longest-running municipal soap opera uh, in BC in a very long time. Of course, we're talking about the Surrey policing situation. Now, as you all know, in April, the Ministry of the Solicitor General reviewed the city's plan to wind down the Surrey Police Service, or SPS. Now, Minister Mike Farnworth strongly recommended at that time that the city keep the municipal force, warning uh, a switch back to the RCMP, would damage policing elsewhere in the province and offered Surrey up to $150 million to defray the transition costs. Now, we've had Mayor Brenda Locke on the show just recently, and she said she has seen nothing so far, including the that vast report uh, written by the provincial government and provincial bureaucrats, that she said that would change her mind to get rid of the RCMP. Take a listen to her comment she made recently on this program. We will absolutely have a decision made this month. There's no uh, question about that. We're working really hard. Our staff are doing that. In fact, I just finished a meeting with staff about uh, the reviews they're doing of the package that... um, is in that that report that came from Victoria. So um, I'm really hopeful it will be in the in the coming couple of weeks. Nothing I've seen in in the report uh, has me changing my mind. There's nothing new under the sun there for me mm-hmm. that has me to to change my mind at all. That was Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke. Now it's a complex issue. I'll be the first one to admit that. It uh, includes first of all law enforcement. It's HR issues, it's technical issues, there are legal issues, and then, of course, there is politics. And it is complex, as I've said, and it's more complex than most people realize. Well, today, I have with me a memo sent by the Surrey Police Union to the Surrey Police Service Chief Constable, Norm Lipinski. Uh, the letter is signed by Rick Stewart, who is the president of the Surrey Police Service, Surrey Police Union, sorry. Uh, I received this letter in the last 24 hours or so. Now, the title of this memo to Chief Constable Lipinski is rather benign. It reads, Individualized Human Resources Plans. It essentially focuses on wording new recruits signed onto when they join the Surrey Police Service. Namely, they are not required to become an employee of the RCMP to exercise their rights under the letter of understanding, the employment letter they actually signed. Now, the letter goes on to say, quote, Now, listen to this, quote, to obtain severance payments, our members would be required to continue working while the RCMP rebuilds to operational strength. Therefore, if the province approves the city of Surrey's plan to retain the Surrey RCMP, we expect the Surrey Police Board will expeditiously release Surrey Police Union members uh, in deployment to the Surrey RCMP and pay severance forthwith. 
So essentially what's being said here is if next week when a vote uh, is cast by the council, the Surrey Council, whether they want to keep Surrey Police uh, Service, which is the municipal force, or the Surrey RCMP, if they decide to go with the RCMP, the Surrey Police Union says it members don't wish to move forward, they don't wish to be part of any transition, they wish to leave, and they wish to be paid their severance. Now remember, all of this is occurring before the big vote before council. As I've said, $72 million severance package for existing SPS officers uh, is locked in in that agreement. Uh, Ms. Locke, the mayor of Surrey, has maintained even with severance costs, the city will still come out ahead financially, keeping the RCMP, but that is a strong, strong hit um, to the bottom line. Uh, Now, in that letter uh, from Rick Stewart to uh, Chief Constable Lipinski, goes on to say, quote, we expect that virtually all our members will either seek employment outside policing or with a different municipal police agency. Therefore, we respectfully decline any request to participate in individualized human resource planning to support an alternate policing model with the RCMP as the police of jurisdiction. We expect that if the city and province cease the transition to the SPS, our members will promptly be relieved of their duties and provided with severance payments. Now, all of this, by the way, I do want to reiterate, is legal. He's not, they're not doing anything wrong. I just find it interesting that this information is coming out uh, just as the vote is coming down. Now, to date, uh, the SPS has hired over 390 sworn officers and civilian support staff. Of these, about 330 are sworn officers, including new recruits uh, currently that are in the sort of various stages of training. Now, that uh, memo that was written by uh, Rick Stewart, the president of the Surrey Police Union, was sent to Chief Constable Norm Lipinski on May 30th. Now, stay with me here. On June 6th, uh, Chief Constable Lipinski sent a memo to the Surrey Police Board, uh, highlighting essentially what has been stated. He then specifically says, he says specifically, the memo states, or the memo notes, we expect that if the city and province cease to transition to the SBS, our members will promptly be relieved of their duties and provided with severance payments. So already what you're seeing here, before the vote is cast, that SPS um, union members basically say, we don't we wish to be a part of any transition. Uh, back to the RCMP. And as I've said, to date, the SPS has hired over 390 sworn officers and civilian support staff. Of these, about 330 are sworn officers. The Surrey Detachment has 734 officers, leaving with it about 515 Mounties. Now, recruitment and human resource challenges are at the heart of the key conditions for Minister Farnworth, who feels that Surrey RCMP, if the Surrey um, Council were to keep the RCMP, that the RCMP not poach officers from different municipal detachments. So you can see already that there is a tremendous amount of... um, churn and challenge there for the residents of Surrey, that if SPS doesn't move forward, its members have said, thank you, we're going to move on, give us our severance package, period, end of story. Now, I posed these questions or a specific question to the Surrey RCMP today. I asked them that if the council, based on their votes next week, decide uh, whether, whether to stay with the RCMP, can the RCMP provide enough resources so that there is adequate police on the ground, boots on the ground in Surrey, to keep the residents safe. 
I have received a statement from Assistant Commissioner Brian Edwards, who's the Surrey RCMP officer in charge. He goes in his statement, goes on to say, quote, in the event of any significant changes to resourcing levels at Surrey Detachment, there are numerous mitigation strategies that will be immediately put in place to ensure both public and police officer safety. On any given shift in Surrey, on top of the frontline resources, we have a number of teams that could be redeployed on a temporary basis to support the front line. These include plainclothes investigation units, uniformed gang and bike foot patrols, traffic officers, uniformed community police officers, as well as a team on call, serious crime investigators that are called in during a major incident. Surrey RCMP watch duty officers have 24-7 control to manage resources by utilizing the above noted teams. We have also received significant operational support from Lower Mainland Integrated Teams for Forensics, Police Dogs, Air Services, Uh, homicide investigations, emergency response, as well as seamless support from both the RCMP, provincial, federal units, as outlined in our policing contract agreement. The Surrey RCMP is well positioned to quickly adapt and scale resources if needed to ensure public safety in Surrey in the event of any short-term resourcing uh, changes. So the vote next week uh, could, could lead to a domino effect where the Surrey Police Union says its members wish to move on, the vast majority of them, and they do not wish to take part in any transition that will lure the RCMP to come back to full full, uh, full support. They would like to move on, and they would like to be paid their severance. And as I said, uh, at this point, that's about budgeted at about $72 million. I'll be tweeting out the two memos that I've just uh, mentioned. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Focus a little bit on the Surrey uh, Police Union. Today they sent out a release uh, basically saying that they have uh, submitted a formal request to the City of Surrey Ethics Commission to disqualify Councillor Rob Stutt uh, from voting in the upcoming decision on policing uh, in Surrey. One, of course, that we're all waiting for and one that has been discussed uh, many, many times. Mr. Stutt is the chairman of the P- Public Safety Committee and a former RCMP member. Um, we, uh, According to the union, um, uh, Mr. Stutt's uh, son and daughter both work or both employed by the RCMP uh, in Surrey as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Darren Shepard, director with the Surrey Police Union. Mr. Shepard, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So why is this important here as we get closer to a vote? Uh, do you think Mr. Stutt should be just completely taken off? He shouldn't be voting on this issue. Um, well, we want the investigation to continue into whether or not there is a conflict Uh, Based on the facts that you just stated there, we believe that it's definitely worthy of an investigation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want a fair, open process. Um, It's unfortunate that Councillor Stutt did not disclose this information during his run as a councillor or leading up to the previous vote last fall. Uh, That's when this information should have come out. However, uh, we're here today in June, um, having filed our um, concerns with the Ethics Commissioner and waiting for Mr. Stutt to um, to speak to the ethics commissioner and, and um, cooperate with the investigation. Has Mr. Stutt made any co- uh, comment on this issue publicly before in the last couple months? Uh, not to my knowledge, no. 
Um, during his election campaign, he had put that he was a law, had an extensive career in law enforcement, but there was no disclosure about his association to the RCMP or his son, daughter, and uh, wife's association as well. Um, isn't this too late now, uh, considering we will probably have a vote um, probably next week on this very important issue? Um, well, it's never too late for the facts to come out. I think that that's very important. It's what the citizens of Surrey and indeed the province of British Columbia would expect from politicians, that they are forthcoming, that they do disclose potential conflicts, um, regardless of the vote uh, going forward next week, whether it does or it doesn't. Uh, we do feel that this is a matter worth looking into, and we're hoping that he takes this opportunity to either take the opportunity to proactively cooperate with the ethics commissioner in providing a statement mm-hmm. or to recuse himself from the vote, knowing that uh, at the very least he's in a perceived conflict of interest, if not an actual conflict of interest. In the release, it says that... Um uh, that he and the mayor, Brenda Locke, have been strategic in keeping silent with no comment to the public. You're saying basically that um, uh, they've been finessing their way around these interviews or uh, just not making themselves available in regards to this issue. Like they're just wanting to get to this vote without having to be accountable in your mind. In my mind, yes. And in our belief, uh, it's it's become a real theme, just the uh, continued delay, delay, delay technique. Uh, tactics that are have been demonstrated um there was an opportunity for mayor Locke to sign off on the nda and really get into the reports and have a chance to read them uh, unfortunately she delayed that while other councillors were signing them educating themselves as to what was contained within the reports um but unfortunately she chose not to and uh, it's just a, a pattern of delays that we've seen all along. Other councillors, uh, there are other examples of councillors um, uh, outside of Surrey that have recused themselves on some of these key votes on something of uh, this importance or involving law enforcement? Yes, there are. And um, in fact, there's other examples from um, involving directly the police. So uh, there was a councillor in, in Hamilton who failed to disclose that her son was a employee, I believe, a staff sergeant with the Hamilton Police Service, and when it came to matters of voting on budgets and such, uh, wasn't disclosed, and she was subsequently docked pay um, uh, as a result of the Ethics Commissioner's investigation there. So it's not the first time this has happened, um, but now that we're aware of it, we think it's very important um, that the vote takes place in a fair and transparent manner. Mm-hmm. That's been touted uh, numerous times by Mayor Locke. Um, the transparency is important to her and at this point we're just calling on her to ensure that the process is transparent and is fair. There is um, a lot riding on the vote potentially as early as next week. What's the mood of the Surrey Police Union members? I mean there's a lot on there. They A lot of them have moved from other parts of the country, gone through training, um, joined this police force. Uh, there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of profile in the Surrey Police Service and you have an election and everything turns around where potentially the mayor and her slate, which have the majority, uh, have said uh, certainly publicly nothing they have seen so far has changed their mind. Who knows? Things may change by next week. I don't know. Uh, but there's a lot riding on this vote. What's the mood of your colleagues and, and fellow members of the Surrey Police Union? Yeah, thank you for that question, uh, Jazz. It's very important that we recognize that many of our members did move from across uh, Canada to come here. Uh, many of them were with other police agencies, including the RCMP, but had roots and family in Surrey. They wanted the opportunity to come home to Surrey to police 
uh, in the community where they grew up, to raise their families where they grew up, um, to provide an opportunity to give back to a city that's been uh, was wonderful to them during their formative years. So for them to have uh, taken that leap of faith, uh, come here to, uh, um, you know, basically pull up their family roots from wherever they were and come here, mm-hmm. um, it is very stressful. So you've combined the stress of a move across the country or from another province um, or leaving even a local agency um, where you had more stability um, to come and work in the community where you live, where your children go to school, where you coach minor hockey, uh, where you want to be a part, you want to give back, and you want to form uh, a new police service that is uh, truly different um, to have all of this nonsense that, uh, frankly, we didn't, none of us signed up to be police officers to go through this. So uh, for them to have to deal with that stress, it is stressful. Mm-hmm. We are a very resilient group, though. We've hired people because of their resilience, because of their experience. Um, We're very confident um, that we will uh, see this through, but uh, it's definitely an unneeded stressor in a a profession that's uh, completely full of stress Uh already. Uh, Your president, uh, Rick Stewart, sent a letter recently to the chief constable, uh, Norma Lipinski, basically saying that, look, if it does go RCMP, the vast majority of members um, uh, or in this case, he said virtually all our members will either seek employment outside policing or the different municipal police agency, and they are respectfully declining any request to participate in a, in a, I guess a transition towards or back to the RCMP. And they, they what they want to see is uh, basically that members be promptly relieved of their duties. These are SPS members, your fellow colleagues, and they provided with severance payments. Is that a, 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 a accurate reading of what your colleagues would like, that if it does end up going to the RCMP, that you as a police union says, look, that's nice. That's not what we were signed up for. We would like to be relieved of our duties and um, be handed our lawful severance package and we move on and we can make decisions on our life moving forward. Yes, well, it, it's essentially it's a, we're restating something that we'd already established. We did internal polling of our membership uh, last year, we found that 95% of our members had no desire to join the RCMP. Uh, many, such as myself, have come from the RCMP after a long career, but wanted to do something different and to build something different. Others had no intention of ever joining the RCMP, so we thought it was important to restate that. It was also a restatement of Minister Farnworth's comment about um, individualized uh, HR plans being done for our members. Um, so in order for the binding restrictions that the province has put on the RCMP's plan and the city's plan to have us switch over, it was important to identify that as part of that transition that there will be very few of our members uh, that would be even express an interest in that. Um, they'll simply go to other police forces locally or perhaps uh, across the country mm-hmm. and uh, or in a situation such as myself, potentially be policing all together, resulting in a, a deficit to the number of police officers that are actively working in the province. So, yeah, and I get where you're coming from. It's a, it may be a restatement, but a very strong restatement. Number one, there's financial implications for it, uh, but also it does say, as, as you rightfully say, the vast majority of you don't have an interest in joining the RCMP or to be part of that transition if council decides to head in that direction. But there's a lot riding uh, on that vote, and certainly you as a union have expressed your concerns over Councillor Rob Stutt as well. Uh, Mr. Shepard, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for having me.
If you're just joining us, we were speaking to Darren Shepard, director with the Surrey Police Union. And of course, uh, in the three o'clock hour, we talked a little bit about a memo uh, that we got a hand on, our hand on us from the Surrey Police Union uh, to uh, Chief Constable Norman Lipinski, basically sitting that, uh, quote, we expect that all virtually all our members will either seek employment outside policing uh, and they also went on to say that uh, they wish to, if they stick with the RCMP, the city does, that SPS members um, be relieved of their duties and provided with severance payments, which would be about $72 million in total for the whole department. So, well, what does this all mean in regards to um, the big vote for next week? Well, joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global, Global BC's legislative reporter. Hello, Richard. Hi, Jess. Hi. Um, I, I just wanted to get clarify one thing for me, most importantly – can the minister impose SPS or RCMP uh, onto the community, in this case Surrey, or is it ultimately this Surrey's decision in regards to um, who they can have as a, uh, as a as a law enforcement agency? Yeah, it's nuanced here. It's ultimately up to the city on who polices them, but it has to meet conditions imposed by the province under the Police Act to ensure that there is safety inside the community. And that is the debate that is going on right now. And because of this process being drawn out, we haven't even seen Surrey City Council vote yet on a plan approved by the province. Currently, the plan to stick with the RCMP is not approved by the provincial government. And at some point, the province will say, you do not have an approved policing plan. You must move forward with the Surrey Police Service. What we anticipate will happen at some point in the next few weeks, and this is the vote that you were just speaking about uh, with Councillor Stutt and all these concerns, that vote will eventually come forward where Mayor Brenda Locke will attempt to pass a plan through Council that she believes will be approved by Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. My best guess is this plan will not meet the conditions let out by the Minister, and ultimately the Minister will then say, You haven't met my conditions. We must move forward with Surrey Police. It's nuanced, I know, because the province is saying that it's up to the city, but there are conditions here that need to be met, and many have described these as nearly impossible to meet based on, you know, the the memo that you mentioned, mainly around this this dramatic issue of staffing. Um, Even if Surrey did have the right plan and had the dollars... It's impossible because the RCMP just cannot train enough people without robbing other detachments, which already a desperately need of officers. Ultimately, I think that's the issue. That is the issue, and there is an argument on both sides here. We have heard the RCMP say they believe they can. They have improved their training. They move people through depot faster than ever before. Uh, there is an interest to work in Surrey because it's a different type of policing They believe that they can do all of that without robbing other communities. The other issue at play here are the hundreds of officers that the RCMP has promised to BC that will go into rural communities. This is money you may remember was promised in the fall uh, from Premier David Eby and the Solicitor General. Uh, There's a belief from those in Surrey and the RCMP that it can be done. The province doesn't agree, and I spoke to some people in the province today. They are acutely aware of this memo uh, that you've obtained. That was one of their concerns when laying out the recommendation of Surrey Police. It is important to note the RCMP is contracted to operate 
in Surrey. They must provide these services through the duration of the contract. Surrey Police is currently not contracted to work in Surrey. They are supplementing RCMP as part of this transition, meaning legally Surrey Police could remove its services, putting the RCMP in an incredibly difficult position here. The RCMP legally cannot remove its services till the end of that contract, and that transition point from now till the end of the contract the province believes will give Surrey enough time to staff up to the levels needed to maintain security. It's such a crucial point there, Jazz, because the, the, the fears are that the RCMP just doesn't have, as you described, the, the power, the, the human resource power in order to ensure they meet those proper conditions to ensure safety in the community. This is going well into July or August, I can hardly <laughs> tell. Of, of what year, Jazz? Of what yeah, year? <laughs> I know. I, I just think this may end up in court in some way. I don't know. This is going to continue because even with the vote, as you say, there's so many repercussions from that vote and everything else that's um, that's going to transpire. And, Richard, and if this conflict of interest plays out, we may have a tie vote. Yeah. Yeah. which makes things even more complicated. <laughs> oh, my God. Richard, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure is always. Thanks, right. um, now, I'm always, um, you know, amazed at the amount of construction we see uh, in, in our city, particularly around Oak now. You're seeing so many more um, higher density uh, buildings going up along Oak, busy arterial roads uh, where um, there has been land assembly, so homes purchased, and now they'll be replaced by uh, either uh, condominiums or townhouse complexes. But generally, when you do look at greater density, you see it along busy arterial roads. You don't see it in more quieter uh, side streets. Uh, but increasingly, you're going to potentially see that uh, based on an article in today's Vancouver Sun. Dan Fumano is a city columnist for the Vancouver Sun in the province, and he's got a fabulous article today looking into uh, proposals where you would see apartment buildings uh, in many areas where you generally find single-family homes. Dan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Yeah, I, I saw the article and uh, immediately was quite interested and wanted to chat with you about it. Talk to me a little bit about this program that uh, has started in Vancouver. So this is kind of uh, the result of years and years. The city hall planning staff has been talking about the general idea of allowing more kinds of housing on these residential side streets where historically... You know, the, the majority of Vancouver's residential land, the only thing you could sort of legally build was detached houses. And then more recently, sort of about six years ago, uh, one of the previous councils allowed duplexes to be built on the vast majority of this land. But now, increasingly, uh, they're trying to move towards allowing small apartment blocks. You know, in this case, is a four-story apartment building. Um, and they're sort of just off of Main Street. So in this case, this is just kind of just across the alley from Dunbar, which is a main arterial. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a relatively new program uh, or updates to an existing program. Um, so we're sort of just starting to see the first round of these proposals coming forward. None of them are actually under construction yet. A handful of them have been approved. There's a handful of other ones that are coming to council uh, or will be coming to council later this year for consideration. And uh, has there been any sort of organized opposition to them from community organizations concerned about uh, the character of the neighborhood, um, more rentals in the neighborhood? Um, Yeah, I mean, definitely uh, we will be hearing opposition as, you know, just about 
anytime there's new kinds of buildings being proposed for existing neighborhoods, we hear varying levels of opposition. Um, I mean, the one that I sort of focused on today, which uh, is, yeah, just on the side street in, in, in the Dunbar neighborhood, it's still it still hasn't come to a public hearing yet. It's possible that, you know, when it does come to a public hearing later this year, we might hear, you know, some of the some more organized, uh, more vociferous opposition. But at least so far, the Dunbar Residents Association has been you know, raising concerns. I'm sure uh, there are some people in the neighborhood who would welcome it. Uh, but um, there are some people who are saying that, well, they welcome the idea of having something built on there because currently it's just a vacant parking lot. It's the old parking lot that used to. Uh, it was the parking lot for Stong's Market, the grocery store that was there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people say they'd love to see something built there because it's just been an empty lot for many years. Um, it's not even used for parking anymore. It's just fenced off and doesn't serve any purpose currently. So some people say they'd like to see something there, but they're worried about that specific kind of building or they have questions about it. So we are hearing some concerns from that neighborhood and you know we likely will in others as well. The city, they're taking the position that um, they've been, this is the result of years of public engagement and consultation and workshops and things that they've been doing. Um, and while you might hear neighborhood opposition to these individual projects as they come up, what the city says is that most people who have engaged with these processes say they would like to see um, more rental housing options, purpose-built rental apartment buildings, multiplexes, not just on busy arterials, but on quieter side streets. And, you know, I think it kind of makes sense that as more and more of the city is looking at being renters, if, if home, if home ownership is out of reach for more and more people, um, that more and more people might like to see the kinds of homes where they could imagine living, mm-hmm. not, not only on the busy arterials, but potentially on quieter, leafier now you would, yeah, you had uh, uh, reported that over the past four months, Vancouver Council has approved eight apartment buildings under the the new policy, and dozens yeah. more projects um, that are relying on this part policy are are in the pipeline. Uh, it seems to me, maybe it's just me, that while it is a fight, as you say, and it's always going to be challenged, uh, and there'll be challenges. Um, it appears to me that we've made that cultural shift where. People, well, they will challenge, they'll question, they may even oppose, but there seems to be a cultural shift in the city where we can now have a serious conversation without it being too polarized about low-rise residential or density apartments in these communities. I mean, 10 years ago, yeah. you and I you and I wouldn't have had this conversation, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's quite possible. I mean, that is, um, it, it, it does, yeah, maybe seem to be shifting, as I say, like, you know, as, as more and more people you know, or their children or their friends or, you know, are, are just expecting that they'll be renters long term. Um, and, and, you know, and so maybe the ideas of who's going to be living in these neighborhoods are changing. Um, and yeah, and I think, yeah, maybe people are open to the idea of, and yeah, like we say, there are some people who are going to oppose it or have concerns, but, but I, I, so far, at least, I don't know, just speaking Anecdotally, I, I, I don't feel like I've seen a huge organized opposition to these proposals, um, and they've been getting approved so far. I guess, I mean, in theory, maybe some people will be upset once they start getting built and um, once, you know, their neighborhood does start to change. But these are, you know, to be clear, these are not high rises. No. They're, they're four-story apartment blocks. They're the kinds of, I mean, 
like four-story apartment blocks are very common in side streets in some parts of the city, right? So you think about the older neighborhoods, older residential neighborhoods like Mount Pleasant or parts of Grandview, or Grandview Woodlands, uh, of course, Strathcona. So the older residential neighborhoods, it, it's very common to have a block where you have a couple of four-story apartment blocks, uh, rental buildings mixed in with, you know, old, old houses or duplexes, triplexes. Uh, in those older parts of the city, the residential neighborhoods, it's very common to have these kinds of things. And, of course, in older cities like Montreal or Toronto, there's a lot more of that kind of mix of diverse different kinds of housing on side streets. Yeah, it is. It's definitely getting there. I mean, it's an it's an ongoing conversation. I always think the biggest hindrance these days is probably do you have the uh, can you get the sewage and everything else approved and get oh, yeah. all that done? And never mind yeah. finding the labor to actually build it all. Sometimes that's the bigger sure. challenge now, rather than saying the cultural or um, general opposition to these things. It's generally the sometimes even the more physical things that actually need to be done nowadays. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. No. And I mean. You know, I guess we we hope the city is uh, doing their homework on on those things, and I know that you know the sewer capacity uh, is is certainly one of the impediments to that we we hear from city hall to densifying certain areas, including some of the areas around rapid transit stations, where you've got some sky, you know very expensive transportation infrastructure that in some cases is surrounded by low density houses, and we've heard people at city you know from the city planning department say that they would like to have more homes there. And in some cases, yeah, sewer infrastructure is, is a, is an issue. And obviously it's a very expensive thing to upgrade. So yeah, uh, it, 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 it's not as easy as just, you know, uh, signing a, an approval and saying, yeah, let her rip, uh, you build. But uh, yeah, there are lots of things to consider there. Absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Donald Trump became the first former president to face a judge on federal charges as he pled not guilty in a Miami courtroom today to dozens of felony counts accusing him of hoarding classified documents and refusing government demands to give them back. The history-making court date today centered on charges that Mr. Trump mishandled government secrets that as commander-in-chief he was entrusted to protect which of course kickstarts a legal process that could unfold at the height of the 2024 presidential campaign. Joining me now to talk a little bit about, a bit about today's uh, appearance is Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. Uh, good afternoon, Reggie. Good afternoon. Can you give me a sense of what the scene was outside the courthouse today? Sure. Uh, there were throngs of uh, supporters of the former president uh, who were gathered on pretty much all side of this uh, courthouse. Uh, and they were they were using language that, that echoes or parrots what we've heard from the former president over the last several weeks, saying that he is a victim of political persecution, arguing this to be simply, um, you know, a grudge that's being held by the Department of Justice unhappy that he's leading, uh, you know, on the Republican ticket and is leading in Republican polls. I mean, these are things that the former president says and that his base uh, is buying. But at the end of the day, any uh, fears over kind of a clash of the titans on the outside of the courthouse didn't really happen. Um, As we head into, uh, you know, an election cycle uh, that is going to be very polarized, how will this play out in the context of, of a leadership run? And while this this hangs above Mr. Trump, this court case. 
Well, look, there's a couple of different um, uh, things to think about here, Jazz. Number one, yes, he's going to now have to juggle the fact that he is uh, in the middle of a campaign dealing with an upcoming trial for this uh, for this indictment, at the same time as having to deal with uh, the juggling act for a second indictment back in New York that is going to have a court, uh, a trial uh, that starts up again early next year, and the reality that there are parallel investigations linked to his role in the 2020 uh, election uh, and January 6th that could also play out an impact his ability to run. So this is going to be um, a difficult uh, moment for the former president to be able to bounce back and forth between legal obligations and his campaign obligations. Uh, and, and it's going to be seen as to whether or not he's able to handle that. And if he's not, if that's going to work to erode any of the support underneath him. Uh, final question to you. Uh, after all that he has been accused of and and the court cases that he will have to be dealing with, is he still the front runner um, in most people's mind in regards to uh, the Republican leadership? Sure. Uh, he is still, uh, you know, dealing with uh, a significant amount of support. There was recent polling that came out that showed 80 uh, percent of Americans believed that the charges not only were inappropriate, but also that they were politically motivated. But at the same time here, Jazz, he's also able to suck up the oxygen and take that away from other Republicans that are in the race. Yes, they are going after the fact that this happened, but they're blaming the process. They're not blaming the problem. And in doing that, they have to show their support or defend Donald Trump as opposed to clearing a path for themselves to be able to maybe take away some of that support from him uh, and find their own path forward to 2024. He really has made it difficult for other Republicans in the race uh, to to kind of jump forward and and leap him uh, because an attack on Donald Trump can potentially lead to an attack on you and the base will never come over. These are delicate waters that the Republicans are wading in now. Reggie, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Now, I think everybody uh, is familiar with those video doorbells that we have these days. It's like a regular doorbell, but it always has a small little camera and um, it can capture your image. I mean, I got a, probably the, the, the best example of that for me was when I was an M- when I was an MLA, I would go door knocking just to meet constituents. Sometimes people weren't home, you left your card. But a few couple of times I've had emails from constituents saying, hey, Jazz, sorry I missed you. And then they send me a... Uh, a video uh, of me knocking on the door when they weren't there uh, and they were able to uh, edit it and send it to me. Uh, so it's very common these days uh, to have those video doorbells. Well, several lower mainland cities are now offering a program which anyone's home security camera can literally be a crime-fighting tool for police. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the closed-circuit uh, camera registry is Linda Anna. She's a Surrey City Councillor, and she is an Executive Director of the Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers organization. Linda, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, as always, Jazz. I'm going to try not to ask you any Surrey policing stories. Uh, emphasis <laughs> on try, so let's focus on this issue. Uh, but uh, let's uh, let's uh, chat a little bit about this. Um, tell me how this program would work. Well, it's really simple. So many people have home security cameras and don't even think of them as sort of a, f- a crime-fighting tool. And if they register them, and specifically in Surrey, we have Project Iris, uh, and the program exists in other jurisdictions like North Van Delta and Port Coquitlam. If they register their cameras, the police can access uh, the video in real time. Of course, uh, they do have to get uh, permission from the residents. So, in essence, if there's a crime or you know there's some suspicious characters in your neighborhood, police are looking for them. If they know that you have a camera and 
they will call you and they will ask permission to get the footage. Great tool because they can see stuff in real time. So this is a case of, let's say, um, you know, uh, Jazz Johal lives on Smith Avenue. They know that there are five people, five residences there where the homeowner has agreed to provide access. So would they then at least say, okay, we believe, uh, you know, uh, there was some sort of crime that occurred. Let's say a vehicle was stolen. They would then contact you assuming uh, you're one of the five registered homeowners then? That's absolutely how it works. It saves them an awful lot of time. Now, if people aren't registered, they have to go door knocking and hope that people are home. Uh, and, you know, it takes a long time. And as we know, if, uh, you know, they can get uh, investigations happening earlier, the likelihood of them actually solving the crime is far greater. So it's very important that people that have uh, video cameras, you know, register them and, uh, allow the police, um, if they're comfortable with it, to access the footage if required. So this is a question of they would actually still have to come to your residence, but they would know, all right, who's got a camera there who's registered, and they would then have to ask you to provide that footage. They don't have access to that footage until they come to your door and ask for it. Well, they can do it by phone as well. I mean, it's so easy to transmit uh, videos now, right? Uh, You know, most of us that have cameras can view who's at our front door or back door or wherever online, and it's very easy to send that video off to the police. So they don't need to come to your door to get it, but they do indeed need your permission to access it. But they won't have access to the visual. Uh, It's your, it's the onus is on you to provide that footage if you manage to record it and keep it from a specific date that they require. It's not like they at headquarters have access to your camera. No, they do not have access to your cameras at headquarters. Uh, It is, you know, they do have to get your permission each and every time to access whatever video footage they want. But it can be done so quickly and so easy from your computer to theirs. And it just provides the opportunity for police to start investigating things much sooner. Uh, generally, people that are breaking into cars or homes or doing things that aren't right don't stick around the neighborhood to wait to see if the police are coming and then get caught. So the quicker the police can get this information, the better chance is that the crime will get solved. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in the past, are police having to rely more on subpoenas or is it a question of generally... Uh, people do have cameras are are um, cooperating and generally volunteer the footage. Well, generally, you know, they will have to go door knocking, so they'll have to, you know, take manpower and visit your neighborhood, and knock on each and every door till they get the video footage they want. But really, I think the uh, what's really important to me is so many people don't aren't aware that this service is available, and so I'm really encouraging people, particularly in Surrey. Uh, through our project, Iris, but in other locations as well, to get their cameras registered. It's very, very helpful to the police. And uh, you mentioned the communities here like Surrey and, and, and the North Shore and, and Delta as well. Are other jurisdictions doing this in, in Canada or in the United States? Uh, also Port Coquitlam for sure uh, in the Lower Mainland. Um, Got to give a plug to them as well. But um, yes, there are many other municipalities and cities throughout uh, North America that do this. But I think it's such a great program that more in the Lower Mainland need to get involved. Mm-hmm. Well, since I've got you here, uh, I wanted just to just switch a little bit towards Surrey Council for a moment. Uh, we can expect a vote on Surrey policing next week, I'm assuming? 
Well, I hope it comes soon. Uh, certainly the residents of Surrey and the Surrey Police Service and RCMP are getting extremely frustrated with the length of time that this is taking council to uh, make a decision. Uh, it's been, you know, as the mayor has said, for each month that we don't make a decision, it's costing the taxpayers $8 million. And taxpayers, quite frankly, during this time, or any time for that matter, can't afford that kind of uh, expense for no gain. Uh, the SPS, in an internal document, this is so the Surrey Police Union uh, sent a, an internal document to their chief constable, Norman Lipinski, basically saying that um, they don't wish to partic- participate uh, in an individualized human resource planning to support any sort of alternate policing if the SPS is voted down and that they basically wish to be relieved of their duties and provided severance payments, I guess, immediately. Uh, this is the um, a May 30th document, the Surrey Police Union, which was signed by their president. It was sent out to Norm Lipinski. Mr. Lipinski also uh, forwarded uh, or uh, that letter um, with a note to the Surrey Police Board on June 6th. I have that document as well. Does that change anything for you? And the reason I ask is, you know, it's one thing to vote for one police or the other, but if if you do end up staying with the RCMP, SPS and the unions, the vast majority of them we were told today by a union member are saying, you know what, it's time for us to move on and we'll take our severance payment. And what is that? where does that leave Surrey in regards to it's RCMP and being able to have uh, enough boots on the ground to provide adequate policing as the RCMP starts to retransition up again. Well, I would say that the Surrey Police Service members, who many have moved from you know other jurisdictions throughout Canada, are very frustrated, as of course are the RCMP, and whoever, whichever jurisdiction uh, is decided that we're going to be going with. The others just want to get on with their career. This is dragged on far, far too long, and it's not fair to either members. Um, they have careers, they have you know lives, they have families that they're supporting, and we need to get on with it. Having said that, it does really put Surrey in a real predicament because they're not quite um, at half of the um, uh, police force, uh, certainly not half yet on, um, uh, on boots on the ground, but... It's a huge impact, and we will not have enough police uh, members through the RCMP to adequately serve uh, the city of Surrey. Linda, thank you so much. I am sure we're going to talk again on this issue uh, and, of course, uh, the closed-circuit camera one as well. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure as always, Jazz. If you're just joining us, we were speaking to Linda Annis, of Surrey City Councillor and Executive Director of the Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. We're talking about um, closed circuit cameras and those video doorbells these days that uh, record everything crystal clear, I might add, and with audio. And um, she, uh, as a Crime Stoppers representative, uh, is encouraging um, or is encouraging residents throughout the Lower Mainland uh, to share that video footage with police, get registered with police so they can share some of that footage if a crime does occur on your street. She did mention, of course, that uh, they have a Project Iris in Surrey. They have other programs in Port Coquitlam and Delta as well. Joining me now is Jerry Mayor Judson, and we're going to talk a little bit about a similar program in North Vancouver, I guess, called Project Optic. Yes. Um, so it was launched, I guess, in 2020, and uh, the the North Vancouver RCMP are using it as an investigative tool because it makes sense uh, it, it as a resource thing, because first you have to can't, without it, right, if, say, 
say no back say this the year is 2003 and nobody has a ring doorbell camera uh-huh. and and a time sensitive crime occurs in the middle of the night you have to go out and canvas and you have to bother people to see if they saw anything or even now you have to go out and canvas and see okay well do you have a ring camera go to businesses do you have a security camera mm-hmm. here's the timestamp can we come in can we look so that just takes time and resources away um so earlier today on the Jill Bennett show they had constable Mansour Sahak he's the media relations officer in North Vancouver RCMP and we have a clip of him that we're going to run right now and uh, he's explaining a little bit about the privacy and sort of voluntary nature of it. We would approach the homeowner and ask them, hey, um, you know, if we can, if we would give them a time limit or time up, a time gap uh, of when the incident happened and they could provide that to us. So um, it's totally up to them. They don't have to give us access. We don't need to look at the entire, um, you know, day uh, on the CCTV. So they could just provide us with that clip from specific time gap and when the accident, actual incident happened. So there, if that concern, if there is a concern there, then they could just simply provide us with that time limit. We want people to uh, participate. I mean, ultimately, we can't force people to give us their footage. And there might be some other options, but um, you know, it's it's completely 100% voluntary uh, to participate in this project. I like that part, the voluntary part. Yeah, that's important. So you register totally of your own accord, and the only information they have is how to get a hold of you. Mm -hmm. Um, But they put you in as a data point, basically, on a map that they have. So if a crime occurs in the area, if there is a crime in progress, if there's an incident, they can then look in the area and see who's registered, and then they can get a hold of you more easily from where they're at and ask if they can then come Mm -hmm. in, and you can provide them with the footage from that timestamp. So they're not like, they don't have, there's not a big screen room where they're like looking at what is going on outside your house right now they got they got better things to do which is which is a great thing i know uh those amazon ring uh cameras for the video doorbell cameras Mm -hmm. uh in the u.s i think there's 11 times in a year when law enforcement asked for footage uh, amazon ring just sent it to them from private residents yeah so you know as long as there there is a complete sort of line where it's up to the homeowner to provide that information. Mm-hmm. And number two, uh, at the very least, you should they shouldn't have access to it, access to it automatically. No. Because once that footage is there, in some cases, you know, you have this equipment, it's rented, and sometimes that footage could be recorded and saved somewhere else on a hard drive, not necessarily your property, but in some massive cloud somewhere that you don't know about. Right, and that's weird. Something and about that is weird. Of course it is, because if law enforcement comes and asks for it, then and the company, does, you. company doesn't want any hassle, and it's got nothing to do with their property, they hand it over. So yeah. that's the kind of stuff I kind of get really queasy about. Absolutely. Although the cameras you see today are so small. Uh, and I remember my old days as a TV reporter, used to have these secret cameras you would use, sometimes you put in your glasses. Oh, yeah. But now they're even smaller than that. And you can put them anywhere and they can record anything. So you're just going to see more of these on properties, never mind just the doorbell, but it could be the right at the front entrance as you're the walkway where you see so many of these people committing crimes. Uh, I think that's a good thing. I, I'm still a bit feel odd about as long as that access to your security camera and your security um, hardware you control then it's okay because then you're volunteering. And I think that's a good thing at the end of the day, right? Yeah, it's a little it's a little nicer to, to exactly be in control of what you are giving to the police. I think that is incredibly important. Yeah. Do I, you have one of those in your house? No, I don't. I'm not very good at setting stuff up. I have the ring camera. I came with, when I when I bought the place, Telus sent me one of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, But yeah. I just, I don't have a need for it. I have friends who have, play, have 
have the full setup so they can watch their home. Uh, <laughs> like they have the camera set up in the house. Okay. So they can, you know, keep an eye not only on the outside, on the inside. I just, I don't want to go there. Yeah. I, I don't think need to. No. So far. But, you know, you know, if you have kids and stuff like that, I think it's good. And, and I think I have friends who who have lived abroad, but they have kept the house here. And so they can control their security system. Okay. They can actually see inside the house. Like I had a friend here who was doing the same thing when he was, he's got a place in India. Oh yeah. And so he's showing me his living room inside. There's no one there, of course. But, <laughs> Which is good. Yeah, That's the family's all here, but they're, they, they want to they keep an eye on their property. For sure, one, right? for sure. So I guess technology is good that way, but uh, so you got to wonder sometimes about Big Brother. So there you go. Jerry, thank you. Thank you. Well, you all have to, all you have to do is turn on the uh, news uh, at six o'clock tonight, and you get a really good update in regards to all the wildfires burning across British Columbia. I think there's over seventy-seven presently in our province, and that, of course, is not only disrupting uh, travel. Uh, for tourists, for residents, but also uh, for goods and services as well. Uh, And the BC Liquor Distribution Branch deliveries to many retailers and government-owned distributors uh, is also being impacted. The government's liquor seller and distributors warning is significant because it hints that overall retail supply chains are being strained by fires and could lead to goods shortages, of course. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the impacts of wildfires on alcohol deliveries and the supply chain is Jeff Guinard, Executive Director of Able BC, which is the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Uh, give me a sense of what your members are already seeing and hearing. Well, I mean, first off, the you know whatever we're experiencing, it's because we're members of those communities as well, and mm-hmm. you know the, that's something that you know we, we don't want to bear in mind that they're being deeply impacted and their families are impacted, and that's that's the real tragedy of the situation. But from a business perspective, right in the middle of our attempts to recover from the pandemic, when about fifty percent of BC's hospitality industry is still just just trying to break even and scraping by. We're dealing with disruptions in our supply chain, and uh, we're good for now. Uh, and the BC Liquor Distribution Branch is doing everything they can to get in products from alternative routes. But there are some supply disruptions we're already starting to see uh, when we go to reorder products and things taking a bit longer to get there. So we're, we're not saying we're running out of products and the shelves are being empty or you're not going to have your favorite client necessarily. But uh, the longer these roads stay closed or the more disruptions we see, you are going to start to see some disruptions in supply. So we're just asking for people to be patient with that. How does the distri- distribution network work in British Columbia? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Liquor Distribution Branch, of course, that's the wholesaler. The, the provincial government yeah. loves that business because it makes them <laughs> lots and lots of money. They'll never let go of that. Tons of money. Yeah, tons yeah. of money, exactly. Although, you know, they've allowed more uh, private um, uh, private involvement, private sector involvement mm-hmm. in regards to the retail side. The core distribution, they still own and, uh, and make a lot of money, as they say, off of it. So is that yeah. all based in Vancouver? How does that network work? A lot of it is right. It's based in Vancouver, and there's another distribution center based in Kamloops. Those are the primary ones that feed alcohol to thousands of locations throughout the province. Anything that goes to the island, for example, has to get onto a ferry. So every time you see a disruption in ferry routes, that impacts us as well. Once they get on there, they have to be trucked to all the various places. So you can imagine anybody at the end of Highway 4 right now uh, is not going to be getting any deliveries. We're trying to use logging roads and going over the mountains and, and older routes. Um, but once you know, there's only so much you can do in those, and those are a lot slower, and there's a lot of other goods on there. So as the, some of the major arteries get cut off, it becomes really difficult um, for those central warehouses to feed products throughout the province. So that means government stores, private liquor stores, 
uh, you know, pubs, bars, restaurants, anybody who's purchasing alcohol from that system will have some troubles. We can also get uh, some alcohol from local producers. So if you're out in Tofino, you know, Tough Brewing is still going to be able to service you, but they only have so much product mm-hmm. uh, that they manufacture as well, and, and they have trouble getting inputs on that. So it, it's um, the longer these things go on, we're just one of the many industries that are impacted by it. The difficulty for us is, you know, we still have not recovered from the pandemic. Uh, it's you've got you know, debt coming due. Uh, by the end of this year, you know, because a lot of folks had to take on hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to get through. We have labor challenges, and as I said earlier, only about half of the industry is even making money right now and, and being profitable. So it's it's a difficult situation, and everyone is doing the best they can. Um, but we just hope that this, we can get these wildfires under control to, to restore distribution throughout the province as quickly as possible. I was speaking to a retail retailer recently in the restaurant side, and they were saying that, look, you may lose more restaurants now as these debts are due, as you were saying, at the yeah. end of this year, than you probably would have lost during COVID. And that, that's how, how tight it is that's for res, for uh, owners right now. That's true. And I think, you know, I know we're all sick of talking about the pandemic and everybody wants to put it behind us. Uh, we want to as well. But the, the sad truth of it is, you know, the places that, that got through, and, and to be clear, we already have lost about 10 to 15 percent of BC's hospitality industry because of the pandemic. But those who made it through, there's a, probably another 10 or 15 percent of the industry that only survived because of debt uh, and because of just sheer will through that period. Now that we're on the other side of all those public health protocols, even though we're back to normal with um, the way we can operate, inflationary pressures, not just on our costs going up everywhere. I mean, we're seeing 20 to 30% cost increases on a lot of our core goods. Many prices can only go up so much because consumers are dealing with inflationary pressures as well. So the the business model is under a lot of pressure right now. Folks are doing their best, but I I see you, I suspect you'll, like I say, another 10 or 15% of the industry is very fragile given that half of them aren't even making money at the moment. And that's, you can't keep going on like that. So when something like this happens and we our distribution networks get get um, you know, interrupted, it has a real immediate financial impact on those businesses that are already struggling and in a very fragile spot. Uh, how is uh, access to labor for your members? Uh, that's always the other challenge is just attracting it enough is, workers. Yeah. Uh, give me a sense of what the industry is going through right now. Yeah, thanks for asking about that, because we always say, hey, if you're looking for a job, pop by any pub, bar, liquor store, or or a hotel or restaurant in the province, and they're hiring on the spot. We generally are one of the largest private sector employers in the province. We employ nearly 200,000 people when we're at our full capacity. At the moment, we are about 10% short of that. So we're short 20,000 workers. So when you go into a pub or a bar, and service is a little bit slower, or maybe you can't get someone's attention or the kitchen's a bit slower, it's entirely because we're dealing with those constraints. What it means is we're only able to operate at about 80% of our capacity. So that means our service standards are a little lower than we'd like them to be, which is frustrating for us too. Uh, But it also means that we're not able to get back that extra profitability that we need at this moment to carry us from breaking even to actually trying to make some money and pay back our debts. 20,000 is significant. I mean, it's it's, It's a lot of people in the context of British Columbia. That's still a lot of people you have to hire as an industry Uh, and and up against other industries as well. It just speaks to the challenges before us. And people keep saying, no immigrants for a couple of years. We're we're done. We're full. And and then, you know, your organization says 20,000 at least needed just to get back to where you were. And that's just our sector, right? But that doesn't even include the hoteliers out there and the tourism industry and the retail sector and a lot of others, right? Which is why, yeah, we, we do argue in favor of economic immigration. It's in temporary foreign workers. It's been a very productive and stream 
uh, workers for us. We're also we work with you know provincial and federal partners on a whole bunch of other initiatives, training programs, and trying to find unemployed or underemployed British Columbians who are looking for a career transition. And you know we we lost a lot of folks during the pandemic as well as we opened and closed and opened and closed. Right? I mean, you you wouldn't put up with that, right? Some people no. went and took other professions and. Uh, but these are good jobs. The average liquor server in British Columbia working in a pub restaurant makes 35 to $45 an hour. Um, and uh, you get a lot of flexibility in your ship. So they're good jobs, but we're, we're struggling with um, just an inadequate supply of workers in the province right now. Jeff, thanks for your time today. It's my pleasure. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.